morning of November 6, 1968, Charles McVeigh woke up and started his day. Charles was a retired Navy officer, now spending his time as a retiree. He was a proud graduate of the United States Navy in Annapolis, Maryland, and at one time served as an admiral and as a commander-in-chief. But on that fall morning, in his home in Litchfield, Connecticut, Charles the Navy officer felt like an ordinary citizen. He walked around his home in a daze. His heart felt heavy and his body wore thin. His eyes started to burn with tears that he held back for so many years. As Charles faced his empty living room, he placed his right hand inside his pocket and felt something familiar. This something always made him feel better, but sadly not today, as the same black cloud blanketed all over his body. It's time, Charles, he thought to himself. Slowly, he took his hand out of his pocket and stepped outside his home. You are listening to Untimely, a podcast about events in earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I'm your host, Lynn. Today's episode is quite well known, as many documentaries have been produced, books and articles written, and even full-length movies, providing multiple points of information. Our episode today is about the sinking of the United States ship Indianapolis during the latter part of World War II. Join me as we learn about the ship's impressive history and its catastrophic end. The USS Indianapolis launched on November 7, 1931 by the docks of the New York Shipbuilding Corporation located in Camden, New Jersey. She was classified as a Portland-class cruiser constructed by the United States Navy and served as a fleet flagship in several war campaigns. She is about 610 feet long with a speed of 32.7 knots or 37 miles per hour. She was named after the city of Indianapolis in the state of Indiana and its hull symbol is CA-35. From her launch in 1930, the USS Indianapolis set off on numerous missions before and during World War II. At one point, she hosted President Franklin Roosevelt and members of his cabinet on three several occasions in the 1930s. She went back and forth both east and west coasts sailing to the ports of Long Beach and San Diego in California, as well as New York. While on international ports, she sailed to South America in the ports of Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay for state visits. In the advent of World War II, the Indianapolis was at the Johnston Atoll, a tiny island somewhere near Hawaii conducting mock bombings. When the attack on Pearl Harbor shocked the United States, she became a part of Task Force 12 whose mission was to search for Japanese carriers responsible for the attack. Although the mission was unsuccessful, the Indianapolis went back to Pearl Harbor to join another task force to protect other U.S. bases nearby. The USS Indianapolis had other missions during the war and was successful throughout each one of them. It operated as escorts to American convoys and supported amphibian assaults. When the battle for Okinawa started, the Indianapolis bombarded Okinawa Beach with 8-inch shells for 7 straight days. 
enemy aircraft fought back, but Indianapolis fought harder. The ship came out of this mission with damage, but was repaired in no time to continue the war effort. Overall, the Indianapolis shot down an unknown number of enemy planes, submarines, and carriers, but its crew proudly marked these takedowns by tallying each on her port side bow. As World War II carried on, the Indianapolis was sent on a different mission, a mission that will change the course of the ongoing war. On July 16, 1945, after her repairs, the Indianapolis left San Francisco and headed over to Tinian Island with a stop at Pearl Harbor. Tinian is a part of the northern Mariana Islands right above Guam. As they left Hunter's Point Shipyard in San Francisco towards Hawaii, the ship set a speed record, arriving in 74 and a half hours at an average speed of 29 knots or 33 miles per hour. Many of the crew members wondered, why the hurry? Well, apparently, the Indianapolis was carrying parts of Little Boy and about half the world's supply of enriched uranium. And if you remember, in history class, Little Boy is one of the two atomic bombs that will devastate Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan in about 90 days from when the Indianapolis departed San Francisco. From Pearl Harbor, she sailed to Tinian Island, successfully completing her mission. The next step was Guam to drop off crew members who have completed their tours and pick up their replacements. On July 27, while in Guam, both the navigator and Captain Charles McVeigh received their routing orders to sail from Guam to the island of Leyte, Philippines. The crew of the Indianapolis was to complete a refresher training program. In the orders was information about possible enemy submarines but since the route was the route used by many vessels between the two islands, the risk was acceptable and there were no special apprehensions felt by the Navy to use alternative circuitous routes. However, the orders required Captain McVeigh to run the route in a zigzagging motion under clear conditions and visibility. Navy vessels in wartime usually have escort carriers, smaller, faster ships that sail together with flagships. Escort carriers have been quite effective in watching out for larger vessels on assignment. But remember this was World War II in the South Pacific. There was a shortage of escort carriers which left Indianapolis all alone navigating through enemy territory. The Navy felt that Indianapolis, having been armed and battle-tested, was capable of quote-unquote taking care of themselves. Captain McVeigh set the speed to 15.7 knots so they can get to Leyte by the morning of July 31st. By July 29th, the Indianapolis was halfway to its destination, steaming unescorted along the Philippine Sea. That evening, as Captain McVeigh was retiring for the night, he ordered his navigator to sail straight forward until further notice. The ship was under cover of the dark night, in cloudy conditions, and he felt that zigzagging was not necessary at this point. The rest of the crew continued their duties manning the flagship. Radar showed no signs of vessels within striking distance, and lookouts reported the same. Besides from the waves and the hum of her engines, it was an ordinary silent night. Fifteen minutes into the early morning of July 30th, Two heavy explosions disturbed the quiet waters that devastated the Indianapolis. The ship was hit 
with two torpedoes on her starboard side forward, which caused heavy and fatal damages. Within 12 minutes of the direct hit, the USS Indianapolis rolled over to its port side with her stern rising into the dark air, propellers still turning and rapidly sank to the bottom of the Philippine Sea. She took with her some 300 of the 1,195 crew members. Captain McVeigh ordered his crew to abandon ship, but with the chaos and devastation, the order did not reach every single one of them. Local officers ordered their men to abandon ship as the Indianapolis disappeared from the horizon. Some men was able to reach available life rafts and floater nets, but most of the crew members only had their life jacket. Later, we'll find out that the torpedoes were fired by Japanese submarine I-58, captained by Mochitsura Hashimoto. Captain Hashimoto thought that he struck USS Idaho, another battleship supposedly also within the area. Captain Hashimoto's experience will be crucial later in the story. In the chaos of it all, it was not clear if an SOS was sent to surrounding ships and stations. But from the official report released by the Navy on February 1946, there was evidence that within those horrifying 12 minutes, radio operators from the USS Indianapolis sent distress messages in not one, but possibly two frequencies per the emergency protocol. Despite evidence of the distress signal sent from the Indianapolis, not one ship, aircraft, or shore station ever reported receiving it. The remaining crew of the Indianapolis was left adrift at the mercy of the Philippine Sea, and no one was looking for them. As the dawn broke, the warmth of the sun blanketed survivors floating alongside the ship's debris and crude oil. Some sailors have been swimming and paddling for hours. There were 8 to 10 foot swells scattering sailors away from the ship's final location. Lucky ones were able to hold on to floating debris. Amidst the confusion, crew members started to huddle together and link their life jackets, especially those who were burned, injured, and badly hurt. On day one, crew members, mostly covered in oil, were scattered afloat but everyone thought that rescue efforts will soon be mobilized. But their survival was made worse with the onslaught of nature. The intense heat from the sun, lack of drinking water, and worst of all, sharks. But all they need to do is hang on for at least one more day. Then day one turned into day two. By this time, dehydration started to wear away over the survivors. There was still hope within the group that rescue was on its way, any minute now, but nighttime came and rescue did not. Day two turned into day three. By now the thirst had become unbearable for some and they started drinking salt water. With dehydration, lack of sleep, and unbearable hunger came hallucinations. Some of the men started telling others that the ship did not sink, it was just yards away. These feverish hallucinations caused some sailors to swim toward nothingness and either get tired of swimming afloat and drown or get dragged by the sharks circling the huddled groups about 20 feet below. To this day, the shark attacks from the sinking of the Indianapolis is said to be the most in human history. Aside from the shark attacks, 
What was left of the crew suffered from lack of food and drinkable water. Some found rations floating around the debris and got them through the first day and second day, thinking that they would be rescued soon. Many died due to dehydration and exposure to the hot sun and freezing water temperatures at night. Some whose throats were dry and in anguish of thirst drank seawater that caused hypernitremia. Day three turned into day four. Throughout the days that the survivors endured, there were many aircraft patrols that flew over them. Some thought that the patrols were their salvation and thought that they would be rescued soon. But the planes were too high above the surface to notice the survivors huddled together. It seemed that all hope is almost lost. What made the sinking of Indianapolis stand out from other embattled warships are the stories of survival. Since the Indianapolis left Guam, her voyage was being monitored on a plotting board by the headquarters of the commander of the Marianas and the commander of the Philippine Sea Frontier on Leyte. The board chose a graphic plot of all U.S. vessels that both headquarters were responsible for. Although the departure of the Indianapolis was charted on the plotting board in Guam, its arrival was not closely monitored in Leyte. Since she was a combatant vessel, it was assumed that she will arrive as planned. This practice was considered routine in the plotting of combatant vessels. In Guam, the Indianapolis was removed on the plotting board while in Leyte, she was recorded as having arrived, even though Indianapolis never did. When the ship did not reach Leyte on July 31st, no report was made. Lieutenant Stuart Gibson, the operations officer in Leyte, who was responsible for tracking her movements, did not take immediate action. Because of this, there was no rescue mission planned. On August 2nd, Lieutenant Wilbur Gwynn and his co-pilot, Lieutenant Warren Caldwell, were sent on patrol in their Ventura Scout bomber through the Philippine Sea. It was around 11 in the morning when suddenly the bomber's navigational antenna broke off and was being dragged behind the plane. Lieutenant Gwynn asked his co-pilot to continue the patrol while he crawls back to the fuselage to recover and repair the antenna. As he was crawling back, Gwynn happened to look down at the sea below when he noticed something odd. The bright blue water of the sea was disturbed by an oil slick. Gwyn crawled back to the cockpit and told his co-pilot about what he saw, and they agreed to drop the bomber's altitude to a lower level and investigate. The sight they saw was far worse than an oil slick. Gwyn and Caldwell saw hundreds of men floating among debris and sharks within the area. Immediately, Gwyn radioed for help. He dropped a life raft with a radio transmitter. Once the radio message was received, all able and rescue-ready air and water units were dispatched to the area of the radio transmitter dropped by Lieutenant Gwynn. After three and a half days, rescue operations for the survivors of the Indianapolis began. The first on scene was Lieutenant Commander of the United States Navy, Robert Marks. Around 3.30 in the afternoon of August 2nd, he made his way to the area using a Catalina patrol plane along with several members of his crew. The plane dropped life rafts, but some were destroyed upon hitting the sea surface while some landed too far for the survivors to reach. Lieutenant Commander Marks realized that the life rafts were not enough. He was horrified seeing all these men in such an impossible situation and saw sharks continuing to attack the men below. There were strict orders not to land any aircraft on 12-foot swells, 
But there was no way that Lieutenant Commander Marks would leave this man behind. He went back to his crew, took a vote, and they all defied the order and landed on the surface despite the angry waves that surrounded them. His actions were able to pick up 56 survivors. But because the space and the aircraft was limited, Marks instructed some of the survivors to latch on the plane's wing with parachute cords. Finally, Army rescue seaplanes, seven Navy planes, and Army bombers arrived in the area. Additionally, four destroyers and destroyer escorts performed search and rescue efforts day in and day out, removing as many bodies and debris that they can find. Even as rescuers were slowly pulling survivors on board ships, sharks continued to circle them less than 10 feet below. By August 8, the search was completed within 100 miles of the center where the survivors were found. The delayed rescue efforts of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis resulted in a final death toll of 880 crew members. There were 317 survivors. As a point of interesting fact, the area code for Indianapolis is 317. One of the questions that many had during the investigation was whether a distress signal was sent by Indianapolis. In some interviews, crew members felt that the attack and sinking went so fast that there was no way a signal was sent. But in reality, according to declassified documents, there were actually three stations that received the signals, but none of them responded. 16 hours after the sinking of the Indianapolis, there was radio chatter overheard by the Pacific Fleet that the enemy have been successful in striking an Allied ship. The ship was said to be within the vicinity of where the Indianapolis would have been. Unfortunately, this radio chatter was not authenticated nor further investigated, which resulted in no action taken by the Navy. You are then left to wonder, how can the command posts in both Guam and Leyte miss the non-arrival of the Indianapolis? Captain McVeigh survived the ordeal, but was court-martialed following two charges, negligence and inefficiency that resulted in the sinking of the Indianapolis. The first charge of negligence is because Captain McVeigh ordered his crew the night before the attack to navigate in a straight line instead of the zigzag motion that his order stated. Inefficiency was that he did not order his crew to abandon ship immediately after the attack. During the trial, Captain McVeigh responded that he did not order the zigzag course because visibility was poor and several witnesses agreed. In his defense came an unlikely and controversial witness. The Navy brought in Machisura Hashimoto, who if you recall earlier was the man who ordered the attack on the Indianapolis. Captain Hashimoto testified that even if Captain McVeigh navigated the Indianapolis in a zigzag route, it would not have made a difference. His submarine the I-58 would have hit the Indianapolis without issue. In December 1945, Captain Charles McVeigh was convicted of the negligence charge but was acquitted of inefficiency. The conviction's penalty ranges from censure to death, but due to the other circumstances that surrounded the loss of life, Captain McVeigh's sentence was remitted and was restored to active duty. Many of the survivors did not blame Captain McVeigh of this tragedy. However, other family members whose loved ones died heavily condemned McVeigh. He received angry letters and phone calls, blaming him for the loss of their loved ones. He retired as a rear admiral in 1949, but through the rest of his life after the military, 
The guilt of losing more than half of his crew haunted him and never left him at peace. Nineteen years after his decorated service, Captain McVeigh walked out of his home in Litchfield, Connecticut, and slowly made his way to his back porch. In an instant, he shot himself with his Navy-issued revolver. On his other hand was a toy soldier, a gift given to him when he was a boy for good luck. This toy was in his pocket at all times. Many years after Captain McVeigh's death, survivors of the USS Indianapolis spent their lives attempting to clear him of his conviction. Fifty years later, a 12-year-old boy named Hunter Scott from Florida created a school project about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Hunter interviewed almost 150 survivors and looked at several documents about the event. Hunter concluded that Captain McVeigh was innocent of the charges. His project caught the eye of his then-congressman, Joe Scarborough, where a case was opened and brought to a congressional hearing. Hunter appeared before members of the congressional panel and argued his case. Along with testimonies of the survivors and Hunter's research, Captain McVeigh was exonerated of all charges. In October of 2000, then-President Bill Clinton signed the resolution. Finally, Captain McVeigh and his crew can now rest in peace. It is important to note that the actual location of the USS Indianapolis remains unknown to the public to this day. The late Paul Allen, co-owner of Microsoft, funded an expedition in 2017 to find the sunken ship in the vast Philippine Sea. The remains of the USS Indianapolis were found 18,000 feet below. Upon hearing the Indianapolis was finally found, survivor Arthur Lienerman was quoted to say, I have wished for many years that they would find it. The lost at sea families will feel pretty sad, but I think finding the ship will also give them some closure. More recently, Indiana Senator Joe Donnelly introduced a bill called the USS Indianapolis Congressional Gold Medal Act. This bill provides for the award of a Congressional Gold Medal collectively to the crew of the USS Indianapolis in recognition of their perseverance, bravery, and service to the United States. The bill passed into law on December 20, 2018. listening to this episode of Untimely. The beautiful background music is by Anti Rhodes of antimusic.blogspot.com. For more information about the podcast, comment about the episode, or suggest more topics, follow us on Twitter at Untimely Podcast. Stop by and say hello. We'd love to meet you.